G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. How about you? Are you feeling fit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, going well, I suppose. Uh, oh, maybe in a, a little bit of a July slump in some ways at the moment, Dad, but uh, a good time to be chatting about exercise, which is the topic for the next couple of podcasts, both today and next week's podcast. And we've called today's episode Exploring the Evolution of Exercise. Let's get physical. So, Dad, do you want to just give us a, a bit of a brief overview? What are we going to be talking about today? Okay, and like today we're borrowing heavily from a wonderful book by Bill Hayes called Sweat, A History of Exercise. And what's fascinating about this book is it goes right back to ancient Greece with cultural attitudes to exercise right through to the present day. And it describes how attitudes and perceptions about exercise and its importance changed. And it's even fascinating to understand that it's only about in the last couple of hundred years that exercise was really available in an acceptable way to women. Like, how strange is this? Many of us who might have gone to gyms or you see people exercising outside or even jogging or attending yoga classes, we're very used to exercise being shared by men and women, but for much of history that wasn't the case. But also there were times when exercise went so out of fashion, it was barely engaged in for its own sake for over a thousand years. So like a number of other things, if we understand cultural influences then sometimes we can understand more about our own behaviour. And as we've said before, there's no better intervention for our mental health than physical exercise, just like there's no better intervention for our physical health than physical exercise. So we'll often highlight it as a topic over and above many others, but a different angle today. We're looking at the history of exercise to help consider where it fits in with our lives and, well, hopefully indirectly, encouraging us to do more of it. Well, it is such a fascinating thing and, you know, it's one of the things I absolutely love about history, Dad, is when you do look into these sorts of things, you do get a bit more of a sense of, you know, where something came from. Like, I suppose you find it with etymology a little bit. Like, you might look up the etymology of a word and, you know, find out it came from a particular Latin word and think, oh, I didn't quite realise it, you know, was used in that particular notion or that particular way. And I think, you know, with many things, like if you look into the history of something, it can help to... I suppose, identify and understand maybe some attitudes that existed in the past and potentially there's still some remnants of those attitudes that still exist today. And I think exercise is potentially one of those things. Like one of the things, you know, I find just this one of the most bizarre facts I've ever heard, Dad, but up until 1967, women were banned from running the marathon because it was thought that over the course of, you know, 26.2 miles, their uterus would fall out. So something just so absolutely ridiculous. But that was the official reason for women not being able to run the marathon in the Olympics. And that was, what, 55 years ago now. So remarkably recent. And if you look at something like that, like it, it would seem quite likely that there would be some remnants of those attitudes or you know as we're going to go into today we're going to look at some other eras in history and I think when you do look at these different eras there is maybe a sense that throughout different times in history exercise was thought of a little bit differently and I think when we look at some of the development of, of how exercise was thought the evolution of exercise dare I say 
then we do learn a little bit more about maybe some of the barriers that stand in our way, maybe some of the attitudes that we've adopted that we may not necessarily even recognise that we subscribe to. So I think it's going to be fascinating to get into some of this history stuff today, Dad. Yes, because we'll relate to exercise in all sorts of different ways, won't we? Like it might be like a sport for fun as a game. It might be a sense of competition as well. Many of us will have sporting teams that we follow and we can witness exercise in that way. And sometimes we can see how that emphasis on competition can get things out of balance as opposed to the notion of exercise for its own sake, for its value that it gives us to our health and well-being. But it's interesting to know that that idea of exercise for its own sake has only applied in a very limited part of history in some way. And I think that's something we might take for granted. And, well, maybe we can now celebrate the idea that we do appreciate the value of exercise for its own sake with its physical health benefits and also just is an enjoyable activity, something that adds to our quality of life. Well, Dad, traditionally I'm someone who, you know, I find it very hard to exercise unless I'm chasing a ball. <laughs> you know, I can, for example, go cycling because I quite enjoy the Tour de France, but don't enjoy middle distance running as much, so I find that a little bit harder. So <laughs> I'm sure there'll be people out there who relate to that notion. But, Dad, let's go back to maybe the start of some of these ideas in terms of, of ancient Greece because... We know a lot about, I suppose, ancient Greece in terms of the philosophy and maybe some of the discussion of the mind and some of the thinking elements of existence. But I suppose it's a little bit lesser known that the ancient Greeks were incredibly interested in physical exercise as well as philosophy, weren't they? Absolutely. And one classic example is Plato. And I remember now that I studied Plato in first year philosophy at uni. Actually, we read the book The Republic. But one thing I don't remember is in The Republic, Plato said some things about exercise that showed that he valued this physical activity virtually as much as he valued cultivating the mind. And actually, he literally said that. He advised people to cultivate the mind by exercising the intellect in study. Yes, well, I remember that. But I don't remember him also encouraging people to develop the body with exercise by saying that people could Bring the two elements into tune with one another by adjusting the tension of each to the right pitch. So he's talking about both mind and body, more explicitly advising people to use temperance in their physical training, telling people to keep it simple and flexible with their exercises, saying that if they did that without overdoing it, then they would remain independent of medicine in all but extreme cases. Hey, here's Plato... 2,500 years ago, talking about some of the preventive health benefits of exercise, something that's really only been demonstrated by research about the last 70 years or so. But there was that wisdom emphasising not just developing the mind that we all know of, they were right into developing the body as well. Well, that is interesting that it comes up in Plato's Republic. And I believe Plato himself actually got his name given to him by his wrestling coach, um, so I believe Plato was a quite a successful wrestler back in the day and competed at the Isthmian Games, which are one of the four major athletic festivals in the Greek world. But basically, he got the word Plato from Platon, meaning broad, owing to his broad-shouldered frame. So I suppose in some, I was thinking about it, Dad, like that's 
Plato's name's kind of like, you know, big fella or champ or, you know, he's been given a name by his coach that's sort of a little bit encouraging. Like these days, I reckon that almost be a little bit condescending. But clearly, you know, Plato's one of the, the central figures of philosophy. But if he got his name from his wrestling coach, then clearly, you know, physical health was such a big part of his life. Yes, I was amazed to hear that he had a wrestling coach, that he was such a successful wrestler. And just to even to elaborate further on this idea of not just developing your mind, also developing your body, he referred back to something that Socrates apparently emphasised, saying that excessive emphasis on athletics produces an excessively uncivilised type, while a purely literary training leaves men indecently soft. Well, that's a bit of a slur, it would seem, but again, highlighting the notion of developing both body and mind, which interestingly as well, when Plato and Aristotle talked to crowds about their philosophy, that often happened in a gymnasium, which was such a main kind of institution in ancient Greece, as Bill Hayes described in the book Sweat, that basically the gymnasiums were seen as just as important as a marketplace or a theatre. One of the downsides, though... Women couldn't go there. Gymnastics technically means exercising in the nude, the Greek term for that. So men would go there and exercise in the nude, but women weren't invited. Well, it is interesting that, you know, of all, I suppose, you know, cultures and languages to get the word gymnasium from, it is the Greeks that we chose to get it from. And I wonder if part of that is, like, I find it so fascinating, that emphasis on balance, physical health and balance. Like, in what Plato was saying in The Republic, like, as you said, basically, you know, encouraging people to keep it simple and flexible without overdoing it, as you will then remain independent of medicine in all but extreme cases. Like, that seems to suggest, like, a balance in the present for our health in terms of, you know, we obviously need to exercise to keep fit, and that's going to give us... Know, health benefits in the present but then when he was referring to Socrates teaching you know talking about you know basically an uncivilized type and a you know indecently soft person like these are kind of I suppose long-term I suppose balances of character which you know it still seems that like physical exercise is almost the mediator of that balance of course like philosophy and I suppose reflection and thinking they will be too but it seems that physical exercise is in some ways, equal or at least a very important part of, of keeping that balance both in terms of like our longer term development, but also in terms of our kind of shorter term, you know, health and stasis in a way. Yes, and it's interesting these days that we understand how the two go together, that having good physical health is a good way to support our mental health and vice versa. And interestingly, how both developing our body through exercise, that leads to neuroplasticity, also developing our mind, learning new ideas. That leads to neuroplasticity. So these days we're understanding more about how mind and body go together. But that's where it's interesting to hear how that fits with ancient wisdom. And when you think about it, it's kind of strange that over years we stripped away that emphasis on the body. We separated out the mind and body more, probably after Descartes, and overly emphasise the mind maybe, it's really only in more recent years we're fully appreciating the health benefits of physical exercise. Well, I always find it one of those things that's just about as fascinating as anything when you look at you know ancient sources that basically have only been proven right in the last little time. Like it comes up you know relatively regularly and I just find it fascinating of what they were able to tap into at that time. But 
I also find it so interesting, Dad, I suppose, the development that you mentioned there in terms of the splitting of those two ideas of the mind and the body. And it seems that Christianity had a fair bit to do with that because obviously, you know, Christianity had the focus on the soul and and the idea of the soul and, and maybe the soul as being separate to the body in a way. And it seems that as Christianity developed and particularly through maybe the first, say, 1500 years of Christianity or so, there was a movement away from using physical exercise as a balancing mechanism. Do you want to just maybe speak to that idea of how Christianity influenced our idea of exercise? Yes, well, after this more than a thousand years of great appreciation of exercise being reflected in the Olympic Games, first held in 776 BC, but they were finished up just before 400 AD. And it was finished up by the Christian emperor Theodosius I, following on about 70 years earlier after gladiator fights had been stopped by Constantine the Great, who were concerned about athletics being associated with pagan rituals. So often athletics were connected with reference to Greek or Roman gods, and with the rise of Christianity, this was thought unacceptable. Look, we should be focusing on the development of the soul and not so much an emphasis on the body, let alone these pagan gods and pagan rites kind of thing. So they wiped out these competitions, and with it, for more than a thousand years, exercise went out of fashion basically with a supposedly higher-minded emphasis on the soul, but no longer was it acceptable to exercise for exercise's sake. And so I think it was about 1553 that, that basically exercise came into fashion a little bit more through the Spanish doctor Cristobal Mendez, who wrote a book called The Book of Bodily Exercise. And, and that was also developed, say, 20 years later in, in 1573 by Girolamo Mercuriali, who is quite a central figure in the history of exercise in many ways, Dad. Do you want to just give a bit of a sense of what Mercuriali's contribution to the field of exercise studies. Yes, and I'll highlight that in Bill Hayes' book, Sweat, he has some wonderful stories about Mercuriali and how he found out about him. That's actually a central theme in the book. But one of the main things was how wise Mercuriali sounded when he described exercise and its benefits. And one of the things that was interesting was his definition of exercise, a very helpful definition even today, which was a physical movement that is vigorous and spontaneous, which involves a changing breathing pattern and is undertaken with the aim of keeping healthy or building up a sound constitution. Now, it's interesting that Mercuriali linked the intention of the activity with the idea of exercise. It wasn't just that you were physically active, but you were doing it for the purpose of your health. So this was clearly highlighting that he believed that physical exercise was beneficial, even though some of his physiological theories behind it might not have been the most accurate, there was that good understanding. But the other thing that's interesting is the chapters that he included included some activities that we might not often think of exercise. Like he did talk about standard ones like walking and running and swimming and jumping with chapters also on boxing and wrestling. But he also talked about laughing, crying and holding one's breath. So it's interesting when we look at that broader notion of exercise, say laughing, they've actually been found to be a lot of health benefits of laughing. For example, if people laugh for about 20 seconds, it actually doubles the heart rate for three to five minutes afterwards. 
And once a journalist, Norman Cousins, who was very interested in looking at the healing effects of laughter, described it as a form of jogging for the innards. That actually reminds me there's a laughter group that's met for years at Eastern Beach in Geelong where people get together on a Saturday morning and they just practice laughing. It sounds contrived at first. I actually joined this group on one occasion to see what it was like. It was a bit of fun. It was this social activity. But people would take it in turns to make up some kind of crazy laugh or whatever. And other people would join in. There's actually a whole point to this. No doubt there's other evidence for how it shifts your brain chemistry in some ways. But it's funny to think right back to the 16th century, there was this very influential character who thought of laughter as a form of exercise. Well, certainly, and what I find so interesting about that too is, like, as you say, like, after the Roman Emperor in, I think, you know, around the year 400 AD sort of thing, like, that's about, that's nearly 1,200 years of exercise going out of fashion. But, like, the definition that you mentioned there of Mercuriali, he talks about a physical movement that is undertaken with the aim of keeping healthy or building up a sound constitution. Like, this idea of a sound constitution, again, it seems to re introduce this idea of balance again like I find that so interesting and I believe there was an Italian doctor and landscape painter Giulio Mancini who also lived in the 1500s 16th century he advised people to visit picture galleries as a way to combine recreation for body soul and mind he thought that art galleries were ideal settings for strolling in an enclosed space so again it seems to introduce this idea of well you know there's physical exercise in terms of you know doing it for the sake of physical exercise but there's also added benefits and it seems to be to do with this idea of balance which of course as we mentioned the Greeks first introduced but I just find that so fascinating that you know without knowing what went on in the subsequent time between those two eras again Mercuriali seems to pick up on this idea of physical exercise is for our balance it's not just for physical health. Yes, and I love that reference to Mancini that you mentioned about considering body, soul and mind. That's actually something that's only coming up more recently in mental health circles. The last 20 years, an extra emphasis on spirituality as well. Not necessarily being religious, but spirituality. But also, what a great idea that Mancini had, that we don't just have to think of exercises running around and working up a sweat or putting on athletic gear. Any activity which involves some extended physical movement, is relevant. And hey, if for some people that includes a stroll, even better, a stroll in an art gallery or a stroll in nature or something like that, then there are multiple benefits that we can get. And that's one of the background things when we look at exercise for mental health. Any way that we experience it, it doesn't have to be in a stereotyped way, say in a gymnasium or whatever, that can be great too, But again, we're encouraging people to think of how do we get exercise in our everyday life? Well, I know, Dad, that there was a study that was relevant to this with hotel maids that I think would be relevant here because in some ways it's not just the act of doing exercise that helps us, I suppose, gain benefit from it, is it? It's also the perception of doing exercise too. Yes, there was some wonderful research reported around about 2008 by a researcher, a Harvard psychologist, I believe, Ellen Langer. And she did work with hotel cleaners and asked them if they engaged in exercise much. And about a third of them said they did no exercise at all. And about two thirds of them, I think, said that they didn't do much. 
And she's thinking, well, wait a minute, these people are hotel cleaners. Surely that they're engaged in a fair bit of physical activity. And she learned about their patterns of exercise from their supervisors or their patterns of activity. And it was clear that they're engaging in quite a bit of physical activity. Then she divided the cleaners into two groups and gave half of them, around 40 or so individuals, the feedback that in their work, they were, if you like, using up about the same amount of physical activity or calories as people who were engaging in the recommended level of physical activity or exercise at that time. What they found is it was only the group who were told that their work was the equivalent of exercise, who had reductions in weight, reductions in blood pressure, reduction in waist measure, body mass index. Freakily, it's when people thought of their activity as exercise, their work, their activity as exercise, then they got the health benefits. It's only when they realised that. Well, this interestingly seems to reference back to Mercuriali's idea about exercise being undertaken with the aim of keeping healthy. Now, in other words, if we engage in physical activity, including walking, including other things that we do, it might be gardening, if we think of it as being exercise, we'll probably get even greater physical health and presumably mental health benefits from it. Well, that's just so fascinating to you know get your head around how that works. Like it seems like exercise in a way is almost a bit of a placebo effect, and like I just find that so interesting. I've heard before in the past that, for example, when athletes, elite athletes, visualise themselves competing, whether it be a you know skier visualising themselves flying down a hill or a diver, you know, visualising themselves jumping off the board, doing all the twists and stuff. In those situations, the athlete's heart rate will actually increase. So it seems that there is this mental aspect to our physiological response. And it seems that if we can perceive ourselves to be doing exercise, it's going to really help that. Like to me, one of the main things that's relevant to is, you know, for example, looking back at lockdown. And there was that you know, bizarre time to look back at now, Dad, and we we're basically all allowed out for an hour's worth of exercise. And, you know, in some ways, you know, you could almost look at that, I think, and go, gosh, I'm, you know, I'm only getting an hour outside and, you know, it's not enough, you know, and, you know, you have a point, I reckon, for a whole range of reasons. But at the same time, like before the pandemic, I reckon there would have been plenty of days where I wouldn't have got a full hour's worth of exercise in and wouldn't have thought anything of it and I suppose just move on and carry on with your business and, you know, get your exercise when you can. But I suppose, yeah, now that I look back on it, Maybe if I'd thought, you know, look, I've got my hour today and, you know, I'm going to really use that time well and, you know, it's going to be a good hour of exercise and all this sort of stuff. Well, maybe that would, I suppose, help me get a bit more benefit out of it in terms of my fitness and that sort of thing. Yes, I think it's one of those things that it helps to have that kind of awareness. We could even call it a kind of mindfulness. If we're engaging in a walk or a stroll, wonderfully, if that's also in nature or having a walk and a chat with a friend, if we also perceive that as exercise, we'll get the extra benefit. So it comes back to that idea. This is the most fundamental principle in psychology. It's how we perceive a situation that counts. Not just the situation itself, but how we perceive it. But that said, maybe we can still acknowledge something that Aristotle said. It's relevant to exercise as well. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act but a habit. Yes, wonderful to build in a habit of exercise, but if we've got a habit of walking or a habit of playing golf or a habit of 
doing things around the house or enjoying gardening, if we've got a habit of vacuuming at certain times, if we also think of that as physical exercise, just in our own way, acknowledging it that way, our body will tend to respond favourably to that perception. And so, Dad, if we continue our little foray into history now, if we go on to, say, the 18th century, because 18th century was a fascinating time in the history of exercise in many ways, I suppose partly through the development of science and, I suppose, an understanding about the body and exercise to more of a degree, but also about the influence of Napoleon, which I just think is so fascinating. Do you want to just give a bit of a sense of how Napoleon maybe influenced the regularity with which we uptook physical exercise? Yes, this is a fascinating thing because whereas there'd been some exercises classes introduced into some schools and other settings in the late 18th century, it was actually only in around 1814 that they had the first school dedicated to physical exercise. And this was developed by a fellow called Per Ling, and it was in Stockholm. And I think he got some government support to set up this particular phys ed school. And it was for men and women. It had group classes. That was an unusual thing, group classes for men and women. But part of the motive was a nationalistic motive to prepare the population to be more fit for battle, for war. Because Napoleon's going around looking to increasingly conquer countries in northern Europe. And clearly there was an increasing threat to other European countries. So there was this idea, basically like the idea going back to ancient Sparta. That was another culture where people used to engage in physical activity to prepare for war. But here it is in the early 19th century, finally we've got these classes, but they called it a kind of somatic nationalism. So physical nationalism preparing their bodies to protect their nations in war if it came to that. So that's why phys ed classes got started. Absolutely. Well, that is just so fascinating. And I remember reading an article once, and I've since been unable to find it, but basically it talked about how the you know development of our school system was for that reason in terms of it's basically to set people up to be part of the military. And it seems that you know physical exercise and phys ed classes were a huge part of that. And, of course, that was 19th century, not 18th century. So I, I got that wrong, Dad. I, I must admit I thought it was sort of the end of the 18th century, but... I believe it was the end of the 18th century when they were, when physical exercise first basically came into school classes and then early 19th century it obviously developed with Perling. But I suppose one of the, the major developments, of course, that came from getting physical education into schools was the access for women, Dad. And I think this is something that is worth a little bit talking about now. How did women's access to exercise change obviously with physical exercise in schools, but I believe there was also a technological advancement as well that, that made a huge difference to women's ability to exercise. Absolutely, and it was the development of the bicycle. So even in the late 19th century, it still wasn't encouraged for people to have exercise for exercise sake, and certainly women. But then they developed the safety bicycle. By the way, I really like that name, safety bicycle, rather than, say, a penny farthing that one with a huge front wheel and the tiny little back wheel, it makes you think that people must have fallen over on that penny farthing a bit for the next one to be called the safety bicycle, more similar to the bikes that we have today. Well, the first one of those was around about 1880, 
but they developed a version of the women's bicycle around 1890. And then it was seen as acceptable for women to ride bikes as a form of transport. And that partly shifted the involvement in certainly women in public engaging in exercise. And I suppose it's a little bit hard to think back, of course, because, you know, we don't carry any of these attitudes anymore. But like if you think, you know, this was at a time when, you know, women would ride side saddle back in the day. And obviously I mentioned the, the example of how the marathon was thought to be of danger to women. But I suppose it's, it's so interesting to look back like this was, you know, just over 100 years ago. Like I believe it was 1890 that the safety bicycle was invented, which is part of what allowed women to access exercise so much more. But it, it just comes back to me to that idea of well, what then are the attitudes that uh, maybe there's some residue left over from that time. But if we go on now to the 20th century, so this is when I suppose we start to really get some research into exercise and we start to confirm many of the notions that had been developed over those 2,000 years. So do you want to just speak to some of the developments of our ideas of exercise in the 20th century? Yes, well, a very clever study, I believe, done by a fellow called Jeremy Morris, who thought that physical activity itself must be good for your health and it might help, for example, prevent heart attacks or help people's cardiac health. Well, he had this very clever idea of comparing the health of bus drivers to bus conductors, specifically in terms of the risk of heart attack or the risk of death from immediate heart attack. And what did they find? There are about twice as many immediately fatal heart attacks of bus drivers than bus conductors. And the main thing that you could account for the difference would be the extra movement and activity of the bus conductors, also often on double-decker buses going up and down stairs and not sitting down through the shift like the bus drivers were. A very interesting study. And then it's been since then the research has kept on coming in, showing that link between physical activity through to more recent studies and very recent studies that show that there's a dose-response relationship. It really is the amount of physical activity you do of whatever sort which is the most helpful. So anything that we can do to keep the amount of activity up will make a real difference. And I suppose the other thing that really fascinates me about the 20th century and exercise is, you know, we mentioned the invention of the safety bicycle in 1890 and, and what that did for women in particular. But, but the 20th century continued to, I suppose, have many technological developments that really enhanced people's ability to access exercise. And I suppose part of where we got the title for today's episode, Dad, part of that, of course, being Let's Get Physical – it's in reference to the aerobics craze of the 20th century. And I just find this so fascinating. Part of the aerobics craze, it seems to me, like I always remember back in the day, you know, you'd wake up and you know, people of my vintage might remember this in Australia. You'd wake up in the morning to watch it was called Cheese TV in the morning and had, you know, all the, all the cartoons that kids want to watch. And just before cheese tv finished it was called aerobics oz style and it was on in the morning every so often you'd get up a little bit too early and you'd have your 10 minutes watching your aerobics oz style and that was my introduction to aerobics dad but it seems many people throughout the the 20th century were introduced to aerobics and part of that it seems was through the vhs tape you know before the introduction of the vhs tape of course, there were channels on TV, but those channels, of course, would have had you know a bit of a, a gatekeeper in terms. There would have been a 
a network and a producer and there would have been all these people involved in TV who basically thought, you know, we want things that, you know, basically are for, for men, I imagine, on, on telly back in the day. So I would have been very surprised if there would have been, you know, aerobics on TV in sort of the 19, you know, 50s and 60s in the really early days of television. But of course with VHS tapes, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that everyone with access to a TV has that. So, you know, you can you can put out your aerobics VHS tapes and then, of course, they become very popular. And uh, over time, then, you know, the aerobics craze picks off and, and, you know, with Olivia Newton-John and Let's Get Physical and all this sort of stuff, it becomes huge. But I just find that so fascinating in terms of the involvement of technology and then the access that that allowed people to have to, I suppose, alternative forms of exercise. Yes, and as an Australian, I often think of Olivia Newton-John and that song Let's Get Physical as representing the aerobics craze, but someone who was even more influential was Jane Fonda, as Bill Hayes described in Sweat, because Jane Fonda was so influential for getting people to watch these VHS tapes. She was very engaging as a presenter. She was very used to being able to present herself a certain way. And she'd gone to these exercise classes with someone who'd been recommended to her as a really good trainer. And this person used to combine music with the group exercises. Now we just think of that as being a normal thing, but it wasn't always the way with physical activities that there'd be some soundtrack in the background, but that was a very popular way of doing it that Jane Fonda was able to use very well and reach an enormous number of people. I think millions and millions and millions of these VHS tapes were sold so people could exercise in their own home, something that people continued through COVID as well. When people were restricted, that was many people's way of getting more exercise. But just like you said a wonderful combination of a new technology and also a person who is very skilled at using that technology. Well, absolutely. And I suppose if we continue in some ways the history of exercise, like I'd almost put today's day and age in that in some ways, Dad, and I suppose in many ways a continuation of the 20th century in terms of if you look at, say, TikTok and Instagram, like, I had a bit of a, a funny thing yesterday, Dad, where, you know, I was sitting at my desk for probably a little bit too long without getting up. Just at the end of the day, I had really sore shoulders. And one thing that I've come across recently is looking up stretches on TikTok. It's just the most bizarre use of TikTok. But, you know, you might put in, you know, trapezius knot in your shoulder. And so you get, you know, 15 physios all putting up their best stretches for getting this kind of knot out of your shoulder. And you got to wade through a little bit of maybe the professionals versus some of the, the hobbyists. And, you know, obviously there's, you know, correct information on there. And there maybe seems a little bit of stuff that's maybe a little bit not as research based. But at the same time, like these days, we have so much more access through things like Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, apps, the access that we have to different routines, to different stretches, to different diets, to different, you know, people's views on, you know, exercise and the, the many different alternative takes that you can have on it these days, even access to research, all this sort of stuff. Like we're living in many ways a new time for that. And obviously, you know, VHS was one thing in the last century, but, you know, these days it's very almost open slather in terms of what we can do. And, you know, if there's an exercise that's out there that's been invented, it's very likely there's a video on the internet of someone doing that exercise. So I find it interesting. We've really picked up on this idea that technology can give people access to exercise in new ways. And I think social media is a whole new part of that as well. 
Yes, and you're describing apps and how accessible they are. Should also mention the advent of sports watches. I think that's a huge thing. I think that will just become bigger and bigger. And it's not just measuring heart rate or the amount of time that we spend in exercise. Also, they're becoming more sophisticated, even looking at heart rate variability measures like this. So sophisticated measures looking at our physical health. But I think many people would find that these days, I'm certainly one of them, that I tend to refer to a sports watch pretty much each day of recognising whether you've completed your goals for that day, which for some watches might involve something like closing your exercise rings, for example, a certain number of hours a day you've been on your feet. We understand it's important not just to be sedentary the whole time. Maybe the minutes of exercise, it might be calories used, that kind of thing. But as a rule of thumb, we know it's really beneficial to walk at least 5,000 steps a day. Below that amount, there are much more physical health problems. There's an advantage certainly in going to 10,000 steps a day. Many people would be aware of that. But certainly looking to get upwards of 5,000 steps a day towards 10,000 steps a day, that's a very healthy goal. But we might have other goals as well. And even apart from that, just recognising there's a benefit to gardening, washing up, walking to the shop, different things that we do. If we're climbing stairs in any part of our day, appreciating that is a good thing. There's an extra opportunity for our heart health, for our general physical health. So hopefully this awareness and reflecting on how we view exercise and how it's shifted through history, hopefully it helps us have an appreciation now of how we can use exercise in our own lives. Well, very much so, Dad. And look, as someone who, you know, I'll put my hand up, I'm not someone who's enjoyed exercise as much in the past, unless there's been maybe a ball or some level of competition involved. But like to me, the, the notion that just really comes across is just one of balance. Maybe thought of exercise as maybe a bit more of a physical pursuit than anything else, but... If you do look at, for example, the ancient Greeks and if you look at, say, exercise and how these ideas have developed, like, it never really has been that idea of kind of in isolation. Like, if you look back at all the, you know, the Greek sculptures of muscular men, in many ways, like, that, it's to do with the idea of balance. Like, what they're saying in in that situation is not that this person, you know, has been to the gym and just lifted weights and eaten a whole bunch of protein. So they've been able to cultivate a level of balance in their life and, and that's represented, obviously, through their muscular physique but also you know it's represented a whole range of other ways and yeah it just seems that you can't really have that level of balance without at least some level of physical exercise and to me it's so encouraging what you were saying about that study of the maids because I think many of us you know have some level of movement and activity in our routines but I also think many of us could cultivate that further and it's encouraging that that can be, a, I suppose, a mental exercise to cultivate that further. But yeah, it just really just highlights the role that exercise has to play in balance. Yes, and I think it's important what you were saying too. Sometimes it can be difficult to get ourselves moving. And just on that score, just as a final thing, I'd like to mention two different things, combine them together, that to me can be like a nudge factor in looking to get moving. One goes back to a quote of Mercuriali, who I think put it very well. He said, We in no way dispute that exercise can sometimes be hard and, when it is being performed, unpleasant. But good health is not incompatible with some discomfort. 
I think just that notion of allowing for some discomfort, being there, accepting that as part of it rather than pretending it shouldn't be that way, it actually might help us face that, especially if we think ahead to what are the benefits we'll have afterwards. Many people describe that if they've got up and it's maybe a little bit drizzly and they normally go for a run, it might be on a Saturday morning or something like that, and it's hard to get out of bed or hard to get going, but then they might think to themselves, but how will I feel afterwards? How will I feel after doing this run? And with that, interestingly, I think it ties in with another bit of research that a psychologist friend posted recently. And they were talking about people anticipating how they would feel after certain kind of activities, how good they'd feel afterwards. There's a list of 38 activities. And people were asked, how good do you think you're going to feel or how happy do you think you're going to feel after engaging in exercise? They only rated it moderately. They thought 16th out of this list of 38 activities, whereas relaxing they thought would be good, that would be you know, top seven, seven out of 38. But no, instead of 16, exercise was four on the list. Rather than 16 out of 38, four out of 38, it was one of the best activities for how people actually felt after they did it. Whereas relaxation, they predicted was seven out of 38. No, it turned out to be 27 out of 38. It didn't give people the benefits they thought they would get from it. So if you're thinking, hey, will I stay on the couch or will I get up moving? The odds are, if you have got up moving, you're likely to feel happier than if you just stayed sitting on the couch. Oh, I think I can certainly relate to maybe that feeling of recognising that afterwards, Dad, and could probably use a little bit of a nudge at times of maybe reminding myself that that's a, a good enough reason to go in the morning. For example, the last couple of mornings, been pretty cold and I've struggled a little bit. So, look, it'd be good to even talk about this a little bit more next week because, look, I reckon you've got me covered in this area because, you know, I must admit I've struggled to get up the last couple of mornings and you've been out cold water swimming in the open ocean. So I reckon I'll have to uh, pick your brain a little bit further and, and maybe maybe get some of the tactics for, for how you got over some of the barriers for getting there in the first place, Dad, because I think that is one of the significant things about exercise and this will be good to talk about next week. But if we can recognise what some of those barriers are and get over them, well, then it seems there's so many kind of layers of benefit. And the more that we exercise, the more we can access those layers. So it'd be good to chat about this a little bit more next week. Glad to have the chance to chat about that, Rowan, because it's spooky, something that sounds like torture cold water swimming, gee, can leave you feeling good afterward. Yeah, it does sound like torture.